You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today is a very special day here on the Useless Information Retrocast. That's because Tim Harford, who writes and records one of my favorite podcasts of all time, that's Cautionary Tales, he will be co-hosting the show with me. And we have a lot to share with you. That includes stories about a man who claimed in court that he eloped with another man's wife because she had fed him a really delicious piece of cake. Or how about the strange story of a dead woman who sat up in her coffin inside of her daughter's apartment just as the undertakers began to pour ice over her body? And do you remember California's intense smog? Well, it was credited with changing the color of a man's tie. Plus, Tim will tell you the supposed real story of Hansel and Gretel. Let's just say it turned out to be very different from what people thought. We'll discuss all those stories, today's retro sponsor, the question of the day, and so much more. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this is a jam-packed episode. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information. Now, before I play the episode that I recorded with Tim, I just want to mention that the audio quality isn't the best, and I apologize in advance for that. It was recorded over Zoom. It was my first time ever doing so. And the audio, particularly of my voice, is highly compressed. Plus, there's lots of pops, hiss, clicks, and so on that I couldn't edit out. But I do think you're really going to enjoy this. So let's take a listen. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the Retrocast. Oh, it's a delight to join you. Thank you so much, Steve. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really, really happy to have you on. Uh, Cautionary Tales is one of my favorite podcasts. And I think I've listened to every episode at this point. I'm just delighted that to have such a loyal listener. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to to write a few more episodes for you to enjoy now that you've, d- you've done the entire back catalog. Yeah, um, and in fact, uh, some of my listeners have actually written to me and say how much they enjoy it. So, uh, so your audience is definitely growing. It's one of the best podcasts out there. And uh, not that I've listened to all three million of them, but uh, <laughs> probably of the hundred or so I've listened to, it's it's probably in the top four or five best ones. So that's really uh, you know really great work, uh, honestly. Oh, thank you, Steve. It means, means a lot. It's very kind of you. Thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome. Uh, anyway, uh, I don't know how much you had a chance to look at how the show works, but uh, I do two different types of podcasts. First one is long stories, uh, and then I do what's called a retrocast, which is what we're going to do right now. And these are just short little tidbits that I find, and I have piles and piles of these. So I decided to put them into a separate little show, and you're going to help me uh, go through some of these. And then we'll offer I am comments, indeed. So. Yeah, sounds great. So you ready? Yeah, I I was born ready. Let's go for it. Okay, here we go. Let's go with the first one. 
Not far from the elevated roadway that leads up to the Williamsburg Bridge on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, there once stood a five-story tenement building at 28 Lewis Street. Now, it's long gone, but on June 16th of 1922, one of those apartments was rented by a Mr. and Mrs. Grossman. Inside, the two would care for Mrs. Grossman's 70-year-old mother, Rebecca Sensed. Now, the Grossmans needed to go shopping, so they arranged for an old man in the neighborhood to keep a close eye on their mom. But while they were gone, the worst of the worst happened. Mrs. Sensed's body suddenly stiffened, and she died. So the old man, he grabbed a pin and he pricked at her skin. And this is followed by some additional tests to determine that she had, in fact, died. To paraphrase that famous line from The Wizard of Oz, he concluded that she's not only merely dead, she's really most sincerely dead. Well, the old man, he just freaked out and he ran down into the street and he began to scream something in Yiddish. Then a small crowd of neighbors, friends, relatives, and so on began to gather around and he led a group of approximately 40 people up to the small room where she had died. And then a number of others performed their own tests on her, and they each confirmed that she was truly dead. When Mr. and Mrs. Grossman returned home, they were given the bad news that Mrs. Sensed had passed on. But my hunch is that the big crowd in their apartment may have tipped them off a bit before anyone said a single word to them. Mr. Grossman, he jumped into action and he notified the undertaking firm of Hirsch and Schwartz. They sent over a hearse and two of their men, that's Samuel Donner and Harry Sherman, to retrieve the body. But since this was a Friday and the Sabbath was quickly approaching, they'd be unable to bury the body until Sunday. So they brought along a box and two large tubs of ice to keep the body cool until then. They proceeded to lift her body into the box and began to pour the ice on top of her. Suddenly, one of her legs twitched. It was reported that this freaked out a few of the people and they left, but Donna and Sherman just continued to pour in the ice. Then, once again, one of her legs twitched, and this is possibly from the contraction of her muscles as they cooled. So the two men continued adding ice to the box. But as they did that, suddenly Mrs. Sense sat up and started screaming at them in Yiddish. To quote the 1935 movie Bride of Frankenstein, She's alive! Alive! The room was soon cleared out and Mrs. Sense was moved to her bed to recover. With the undertaker's services no longer required, Donna and Sherman packed up and drove away. The Grossmans then contacted Dr. Bernard Zaglin and he came to examine Mrs. Sensed. He concluded that she had suffered a paralytic stroke and that she'd be fine in a few days. While well, I'd like to report that Mrs. Sense lived many more happy years, this was not to happen. Unfortunately, the good doctor was incorrect. She passed away the following evening and was buried that Sunday in Mount Judas Cemetery in Queens, New York. But I'm happy to report a hundred years later, Rebecca Sense still has not sat up from her grave. Well, that, that's quite the story, Steve. You really twisted the knife right at the <laughs> end. I can't, I can't believe she died the next day. Um, that's so, I mean, it's funny, but it's so gothic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I, I expected, as written by Edgar Allan Poe, I mean, there, there was this weird time 100, 150 years ago where everybody seemed to be terrified that this would happen to them mm-hmm. and they would be buried alive. And we don't seem to worry about that anymore. I don't know whether that's because 
it was a passing fad or whether medical science has improved? Yeah, I, I tried to find, uh, at least here in the US, I read somewhere years ago that in the 1800s, there were more patents filed for you know, something to be an alarm to alert people if you're buried alive, you know, more than there were mousetraps, as the expression goes. Um, but I couldn't find any reference to that. But uh, yeah, there was a wicked fear of being buried alive back then. Uh, the, the thing that popped in my head when I, when I first started putting this story together is just this poor guy, you know, he's put in charge of, of watching this woman and she dies on his watch, you know? Yeah, it's, it's harsh. It reminds me of my, my uh, youngest who I think at the time was seven, was left in charge of his big sister's hamster, <laughs> or possibly a gerbil. Anyway, a small rodent. I'm a, I'm a bad father, not to know the <laughs> difference. Anyway, he was, he was left in charge of this beloved pet while she went on a school trip, and the pet promptly died. And it really wasn't his fault. I think it was just getting old, and it died. And she came back to find that her brother, her little baby brother, had been in charge of her pet. <laughs> He had one job and this thing had just died while she was away. So um, I slightly felt for, for both of them there. Uh, I, th I think the pet had a good life, but it would, led to some slightly tense relations between the siblings. Sure. Uh, my, my parents owned a pet shop for 25 years. So uh, we, we heard many stories like that uh, as, you know, there's always some strange thing that happens and, you know, rodents, they don't live very long. So, you know, if you're lucky, you know, three, four or five years at the most. So uh, it's, I'm not surprised, uh, you know, if, if it was up there in years that it would have passed on. Yeah, it's just a question of timing, though, just like this unfortunate gentleman. I and mean, that was the mm -hmm. one moment she chose to have a paralytic stroke. I mean, she couldn't have done it at another time, but there we go. The, the other thing that popped in my head is, you know, I, I am Jewish, at least I, I kind of Jewish. I haven't been in a temple since I'm 15 years old. But I didn't realize this until my parents passed on. And uh, you can't be buried on a Saturday in the Jewish religion. It's a Sabbath. So on Sunday, there's this, like twice as many bodies they have to bury. It's almost like, almost like they have a backlog. So that, you know, it's kind of a race to get all these uh, bodies buried uh, on a Sunday, um, which, which I never realized because, you know, my family's not religious at all. Yeah. I mean, does that mean that people are, are hurrying to, to bury the bodies? Because mm -hmm. I would have thought that there was no great... There was no yeah. great rush. And in fact, that would cure the problem that we're describing here of people being misdiagnosed as dead when in fact uh, they've just had a temporary medical episode. But if you wait a couple of weeks. Yeah, uh, again, I'm not religious, uh, but my, my mom always told me that you had to be buried within 48 hours in the Jewish religion. That, that would certainly lead to a Sunday rush. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, and, and I I can't, you know, it's a long time ago, but both my parents, I think, ended up in that boat where, you know, it was a Sunday and there's like a line out the front of the cemetery of hearses bringing all the bodies in and um, just uh, something just kind of stuck out to me when I, when I was there, you know. Yeah. Um, the other thing that popped in my head was, uh, was Yiddish. Why is it that when people, um, you know, when they have to go out in the street screaming something, it's in Yiddish. It's almost like it's that much worse, you know. Yes, I, I wonder, is that, is that the way that the story gets told because it's, it, it sounds right? Or is there, a, is there a switch to certain ways of expressing yourself? I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm always struck by the fact that uh, uh, people speak differently in, or have access to different language um, during um, dementia uh, if they're singing rather than if they're speaking. The song works differently 
to uh, to spoken speech and swearing apparently also works differently to normal speech. It seems to access a different part of the brain. Uh, so I imagine speaking a different language might also tap into a different center right. of the brain. And you want, I mean, I'm now wildly speculating. <laughs> after you've had this medical episode, maybe you've got access to one language and you don't have access to another. Um, somebody who knows something about this subject might have more to say than I do, but uh, I'd be curious to find out. I, I always fear because I'm not a person who curses very much. Uh, it's pretty rare for someone to hear it come out of my mouth. And I have this fear that someday I'm just going to be like, you know, a whole line of expletives coming out, you know, to make up for lost time, you know? Well, you, they, they, we, we won't get to control if this happens yeah. to us. Uh, interesting little side note is that my grandfather, he died, I don't know, maybe he died in 2014. He, he was either 106 or 108 years old. And I didn't know until he was over 100 years old that he spoke Yiddish. You know, he threw out a word here, here or two there, you know, but I never, ever heard him speak Yiddish. And it turns out my father says to me one day, yeah, I never was able to speak with my grandmother because she didn't speak English. Uh, you know, my grandfather was brought up in a Yiddish uh, household and wow. couldn't communicate with, you know, she couldn't communicate with any of her grandchildren. Wow, that's amazing. So anyway, so uh, we'll move on to the next one. Uh, you're going to do this one. Uh, yeah, let's go for it. James Sharpless may have been a great engineering student, but he wasn't what one would consider a sharply dressed man. When he set out from his home at 12234 Santa Fe Avenue in Linwood, California, for his classes on Friday, November the 5th, 1954, his wife strongly objected to the necktie he chose to wear. That's because it was bright coral in colour. She thought it was a little bright to wear to school, he later recalled. Yet he opted to wear the tie anyway. Upon his arrival for his 9am class at the University of Southern California, USC, a fellow student noted that there was something very peculiar about the tie. Hey, what happened to your tie? Take a look at it. And that was exactly what Sharpless did. He was surprised to see that his rayon knit tie had changed colour. It was now a bluish purple colour. What was most interesting was that any part of the tie that had not been exposed to the air... That included the fabric that made up the knot and the portion hidden by his tie clip had retained its original coral colour. The tie ended up in the hands of Dr. Joseph Smatko, who was the head of USC's chemical engineering department. After an initial examination, he theorised that some oxidising substances resulting from ozone and other components in contaminated air probably caused the change in colour. While a colour-changing tie would be a mere curiosity to most people, Smatko wished to do tests on the tie to determine the chemical composition of both the dye and the compound in the air that caused the colour change. And just what were the results of Smatko's testing? Well, the newspapers never followed up on the story, so that remains a mystery. I love this tie. <laughs> I love this tie. So, it, this brings to things to my mind. Mm -hmm. The first is, how bad was the air quality in Southern California in the 1950s? I mean, that sounds terrible. It was really bad. The smog, uh, pr prior to catalytic converters, it was really, really bad. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was a young kid at the time, you know, probably, you know, 10, 12, 14 years old when it'd be in the news all the time. But I'd be lying if I remember exactly how this works, but the smog would kind of settle in the valleys and people would uh, be told to stay inside. But now that we have catalytic, catalytic converters, I can't speak here, uh, they've really helped to clean the air. I mean, it is a reminder to us that 
although we face a lot of environmental challenges, if you get the rules right and you get the technology right, you can actually improve things. Mm -hmm. So uh, we need to keep doing that. Yeah, uh, the air today is far more, you know, if you look at, uh, I mean, London is very famous for burning coal, uh, you know, in the 1700s, 1800s, and how bad the air was. And yeah, and well, actually, all all the way through to the to the 1940s, 1950s, in fact, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so things are a lot cleaner today, although there's still a long way to go. And certainly if you go to China and places like that, uh, there are places that the air is very bad. Yeah, well, terrible. But but in fact, China also, I looked into this um, a couple of years ago, the, the air quality in China has also improved mm-hmm. a, a lot. And it's a similar story, although there's this tremendous amount of development in California since the 1950s, um, the regulations have improved. There's more clean air rules. And mm-hmm. I mean, they were literally burning, you know, having coal-fired smelters in their back gardens. And that's, mm-hmm. that's all gone. And, and so, you know, the air quality is still bad. It, 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 I mean, it's hard to be exactly sure what's going on in China sometimes because of the control they have over information, but it seems to be improving quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I've, I've seen the same thing in the news. Um, the one thing that popped in my head when I did this story was the mood rings. Uh, I'm a little bit older than you. And uh, in the 70s, the mood rings were the real hot uh, thing, you know, turn color with uh, temperature. Well, I, I had a, a Lord of the Rings coffee mug when the, when the movies came out about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you, when you filled it with coffee, then uh, the, the one ring revealed itself. And then as the coffee cooled, the one <laughs> ring disappeared again. Um, it did not last. Um, made, me, made me wonder whether the tie would turn back uh, after being removed from the polluted atmosphere, but I suspect not. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing, but I, I agree with you. I probably did not because he handed it back to the, you know, they handed it off to the chemistry department and uh, they were examining it and it hadn't gone back, you know, uh, once it was taken indoors. But it's, it's a shame, though, that the newspapers didn't follow up. And I think that that is sadly not uncommon. I mean, mm-hmm. this is clearly a very cute story and you know, maybe the follow-up is not so interesting, but all the time. And I wrote about this problem in my recent book, The Data Detective. You get the the really cool, interesting stuff gets reported. And then, you know, when somebody goes and checks, let's figure out what's really going on. Let's get to the bottom of this. Was that a fluke or was there something real? The newspapers are less interested. So the most famous example in uh, social psychology is of an experiment over 10 years ago now that discovered evidence of precognition. Apparently students can see into the future. And it turns out they can't. But there was so much attention given to this result. And people were skeptical. They were trying to figure out how it had happened and how this, you know, was it a fluke, what had happened? But then just hardly any attention paid to the follow-up papers that basically said, this is a fluke, you know, this doesn't, doesn't make any sense, this doesn't add up. And it's quite common for very cute, cool findings in medicine, in psychology, in, uh, in economics. They get reported, they get a, get a lot of media take up. Uh, and then actually the, the, the follow-up work comes in, it's kind of boring. Oh, it turns out people can't see into the future. Well, we kind of knew that. And then it all goes very quiet. It's a shame. Yeah. Uh, although I was a science teacher for 30 years, I, I mostly am researching non-science stuff right now. And uh, I find uh, I find I'll find a great story. I'm like this is this is going to make a good podcast. 
And uh, I just can't find the conclusion. You know, the press just dropped it. You know, when, once it's no longer interesting, uh, they just let it go. And maybe, you know, sometimes I'll just leave the file. Uh, you know, I have a whole bunch of, you know, papers printed out. And I'll just leave it for a while, come back in a year and see if I can find something. And if I don't, I, you know, just put it back in the pile. And every once in a while I get lucky and I'll find the, you know, somewhere, some, you know, there's a tiny little mention somewhere. But typically they do drop it and that's kind of sad. Yeah, it, it is quite interesting when you, you, I mean, I do this for cautionary tales as well, and the the trails that go cold or that or stuff that pops up that's not contemporary. So one story I've been looking into for cautionary tales is the you know, the popular idea of poisoned Halloween candy, and I think Steve, I think you've you've actually written about this before. Yes. Um, and there's one famous incident where a boy died, and everybody said, "Oh, it." It, you know, the candy was poisoned. And then the police, six days later, according to the New York Times, the police said, oh, no, he, he accidentally ingested heroin. He had a relative who was a heroin addict or a heroin, heroin dealer, and this poor boy had, had swallowed some of this heroin, and that's what, that's what killed him. Um, so it wasn't Halloween candy. It, I mean, it's a terrible, ter- terribly sad story. So that happened in the 1970s. 21st century accounts of the Halloween candy scare say that this boy's family sprinkled heroin on his candy after he died in order to cover up you know, what had actually happened, to protect the uncle who, who was a heroin user. But I can't find any contemporary reports of that. Yeah, And I do suspect that it's one of those things that somebody got the wrong end of the stick or somebody sort of speculated that maybe that's what might have happened. And then once it you know, got into the information stream, everybody else grabbed hold of this little factoid and repeated it. But the fact that you can, you can find this mentioned 10, 20 times in the 21st century, but you cannot find any mention of this in the 1970s when it actually happened, makes me suspect that it probably didn't happen. Um, and, and actually there was, was nothing to do with Halloween candy. He just happened to die around Halloween. Yeah, uh, I had that story that I did on Halloween candy. Oddly, I had no I had no knowledge of that story. I was talking to my neighbor, and she goes, "Did you know the owner of your house just died? Uh, he was in his eighties. Guy's named William Sharp." And I said, "No." So I go online to look up, you know, his obituary, and uh, the, I come across this dentist out. I think it was out in California, who was yeah. handing out candy with lax, you know, basically giving the kids laxatives. Um, so I was, there's my next podcast, you know. Yeah, uh, but absolutely. but I. Yeah, but I, I do have somewhere in my files another case of uh, Halloween candy poisoning. If you're interested, I can try and find I found that. It. I, I found it. I found it in your yeah. files. And uh, yeah, so there are. Uh, there seems to be one case of genuine Halloween candy poisoning, which is the which is William Sharp, the dentist. Fortunately, didn't hurt anybody mm-hmm. or didn't cause any serious damage. But yeah, there are two um, really awful incidents, but neither of them are. Um, Neither of them are strangers poisoning candy, which is the thing that parents are afraid of. There's, there's something else going on. So, mm-hmm. But I shouldn't, I shouldn't spoil it too much because mm-hmm. people will be listening to cautioning tales around Halloween and then you know, they'll hear the full story. Yeah, definitely got to keep people in suspense. Uh, usually I don't even reveal what my next story is because uh, if I do that, then uh, I've kind of given it away. Then some, there are people who you know, go and look them up and see what they're all about. You know? yeah. So I, I tend not to mention names and things like that. So anyway, uh, let's move on to the next one, okay? Sure. You know, there's no question that the cost of going to college here in the United States has skyrocketed over the past several decades. 
And I'm not just talking about the tuition. You know, books are crazy expensive. There are hidden technology fees added onto every credit. And the cost of student housing has gone through the roof. Well, during the 1963-64 school year, Yale student Alan Kornfeld was faced with a similar dilemma. A resident of Tulsa, Oklahoma, the young man attended his first four years at Yale on a full scholarship. But after receiving his bachelor's degree in June of 1963, he felt he needed to attend for one more year before heading off to medical school. But his problem was that his scholarship ended the day of his graduation. So he took out a bank loan to pay for a fifth year of tuition, which did include meals in the campus dining halls, but it was not enough to cover the cost of housing. Unfortunately, he couldn't live in an on-campus dormitory because that was limited to matriculated students only. So his only choice was off-campus housing, but that was both costly and in limited supply. So Kornfeld found a cheaper solution. He moved into the attic of Silliman College, which is Yale's largest residential college. And to fool them, he provided the university with an off-campus mailing address. That worked out for a short while, but eventually campus police caught wind of this and Kornfeld had to make alternative arrangements. Of course, it's hard to beat free housing, so he opted to take up residence in a ventilation shaft that fed air into Silliman College's squash courts. And if you're thinking of, you know, those confined sheet metal vents that Bruce Willis crawled through in the original Die Hard movie, think bigger. This was a brick-lined passageway that measured approximately 4 feet by 40 feet, and it stood about 10 feet tall. That's about 1.2 by 12.2 by 3 meters high. In other words, it was plenty of room for anyone. Of course, the one thing Kornfeld didn't want to do was get caught again, so he covered the entrance of the ventilation shaft with a piece of plywood, and then he camouflaged it with brick wallpaper. Inside, he furnished his secret hideaway with a mattress, a dresser, a clock, and a radio. Quote, It was a little cold. In the winter, I used an electric blanket, but ventilation wasn't a problem. Well, only a few friends knew about his unusual accommodations, and they never squealed. But once he completed his spring coursework, he emerged from his cubbyhole, and he revealed to the public what he had done. I'm not an architect, but... It seems to me that, judging from all these movies, every building that you could possibly be interested in has this enormous system of ventilation. Mm -hmm. There's basically an entire secret uh, maze of connecting passageways. And, you, know, you, can, you can live there, you can, you can break out of the Bond villain's lair using ventilation shafts and so on. Um, and I do, I do wonder whether real air conditioning actually works like that. I worked in a school for 30 years, and of course, uh, the ventilation system, the whole heating system, cooling system is in the ceiling. And uh, from time to time, you know, when you work there that long, they replace things, you know, the ventilation units on the roof and so on. And they'd have all the ceiling tiles out, and you could see it. I would say a person could fit in there, but actually living in it would be uh, impossible. Um, but it does remind me of a story, and I really don't know if this is true, Supposedly, it happened. You know, it happened before I started working in the district uh, thirty years ago, or thirty-two years ago. Uh, in the back of the school's auditorium, there was a projection booth. You know, where they had all the old projectors and things like that. And uh, there was no glass. Uh, it was basically cinder block, and you could crawl through the holes and get into that little room. Well, supposedly, some kid didn't want to go home at night, so what he would do is crawl in there, and then there was a ladder to take you on top of the auditorium to the kind of you know, catwalks are on top and he'd live up there. 
honestly, I have no clue if that's really true, but uh, that's the story that's been handed down through uh, all these years, you know? Yes, I think we can file that one under too good to check. It reminds me of the, the story of Dallas Egbert, who was a young man who was a student who uh, went missing. And in the, I think, 1978, maybe 1979, um, around that time. And the authorities concluded that he had disappeared in the steam tunnels of his university. So there's this, this whole kind of heating system. I forget exactly, maybe he was in Michigan. I forget exactly which university he was at, but it got cold in the winter. So you have this whole system of steam heating the campus. And around these steam pipes, there were uh, these very simple cinder block tunnels. And so you could wander around these tunnels that, that allowed maintenance access to the steam pipes. And kids used to play live action versions of Dungeons and Dragons mm -hmm. in these tunnels. And Dungeons and Dragons was quite a new game. So people, no one knew really what Dungeons and Dragons was. And so these, the story was that Dallas had, had gone missing. He'd been playing some game in the steam tunnels and maybe he died in the steam tunnels or maybe he was still still in the steam tunnels and and you know there was this private detective who's who's kind of he's a texas guy he's still around he kind of does ufo tv reality tv shows for for uh for fox and you know he wrote this book all about this whole episode and he told the media that he thought that you know, Dallas had lost his mind and thought he was a wizard and all this stuff. And so the whole thing just got completely crazy. I did a whole cautionary tales about this, about what actually happened to Dallas. Which is very good, and, by the way. Thank you. And and about, you know, our fear of the unknown. And as as kind of parents, we we watch our kids doing things that we don't understand. And actually the kids are having fun and it's fine. Um, mm. But we don't, we fear what they're doing a bit and we don't understand it. And so we create these crazy stories. Um, and yeah, I mean, Dallas, Dallas was, you know, he was a, he was a young man who really suffered and, and, and in the end died young. It was nothing to do with Dungeons and Dragons and it was nothing to do with the steam tunnels. It was just the most remarkable fantasy. And they even based, created the early Tom Hanks movie was based on mm -hmm. this completely non-existent story of this guy losing his mind. Uh, because he was playing Dungeons and Dragons. You know, having been a teacher for 30 years and teaching, you know, high school students, you know, ages 14 to say 18. When I was young, I listened to the same music. I watched the same movies. I did mostly what they did. Yeah. But as I got older, there became a larger and larger generation gap. And, you know, people always, and of course, technology has really moved into these kids' lives, which didn't exist when we were younger. And everyone's very fearful of what's going to happen. You know, the, the next generation is going to pot, but the reality is everything always works out fine. You know, I, th I think it's just every generation thinks the next one's going, you know, where, and, uh, and it, I mean, yeah, there are some things that go wrong, but in general, they figure it out and uh, it's just change, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And what we're really afraid of is just being left behind, I suspect. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I have to say, uh, you know, I'm pushing 60 years old and, uh, and I'm, I was always on, the edge of technology, you know, I, I love computers and things like that, but I do feel like, uh, I've been a little left behind at this point, you know, it, it's inevitable. It comes a time for all of us that we yeah. just like, okay, I'm checking out. Yeah. 
So Tim, I ask a question of the day in every one of these podcasts, and uh, I have a little bit of a stumper for you. Okay. Now, the first episode of Cautionary Tales I heard was actually, uh, it was a drop, it was dropped into the feed of Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, and that was the one on Martin Luther King. So my question for you is basically, how much do you know about Martin Luther King? And it's a very simple question. And by the way, whether you know the answer or not, don't say anything until the end of the podcast, okay? Okay. Uh, I, I think before you ask the question, I don't know much about Martin Luther King. I, I studied a particular couple of speeches of his mm. in some detail, but I suspect that as a Brit, I know less about him than the average American high schooler, which may be less than, uh, less than any of us should know, but go for it. Uh, I think you'd be surprised uh, how little people really, I mean, most people know his famous speeches, just basically what you did in your podcast. Um, anyway, uh, his real name was, he wasn't born Martin Luther King Jr. He was born with another name. So what was Martin Luther King's birth name? I love it. Okay, so uh, just hang around for a bit, and this is for the audience out there, and we'll discuss the answer at the end of the podcast. Sounds great. So Tim, as I said, I just love Cautionary Tales. It is one of my favorite podcasts. So I thought I'd just give you a little time to tell about the podcast, what it's about, and uh, what led you to it, and so on. Sure. So thank you. Cautionary Tales is a podcast where I tell true stories of things going wrong and try to learn lessons. So there's often a little bit of social science, maybe some psychology, economics, or you know, maybe it's safety engineering or some, some nerdy detail about why what happened happened. And the things that go wrong, I mean, sometimes they're absolute disasters, they're plane crashes, they're catastrophic fires, military defeats. Um, sometimes they're quite funny. They just silly little things, uh, people embarrassing themselves and frauds. Sometimes where your sympathy is more with the fraudster than with the person who's being conned. And um, yeah, it, it's great fun because I love to tell stories. I love to, to dive into the history, but uh, I also love this process of trying to figure out what the scientific literature has to, has to teach us. And I, I work with a great team. We've got some amazing actors. Helena Bonham Carter has contributed. Uh, there's one one episode where she played Florence Nightingale. Uh, Jeffrey Wright de delivered an amazing performance as Martin Luther King. So I, I never thought that I would be writing script for for Helena Bonham Carter <laughs> and Jeffrey Wright. That's pretty incredible. And the sound design is great and beautiful music by our composer Pascal Wise. So I'm I'm having a lot of fun and hopefully I'll get to keep doing it. Yeah, how long uh, have you been doing it now? So the first series aired in 2019. Mm -hmm. Then we put out a sort of lockdown series in the summer of 2020, trying to make sense of what was happening. And then the second full series in 2021, that was 14 episodes. And since early 2022, we've been trying to end the, the practice of appearing in seasons and we're just trying to go for it mm -hmm. and and just keep going so we're releasing episodes every two weeks now and hopefully we'll continue to do that it's um, it keeps me busy i'm always off to the library trying to find some new story but i'm you know having a great time yeah i'm a me uh when i started my podcast i'm almost at 15 years now and uh, when i started it i said oh, oh i'll do a new story every week i quickly learned uh, that was burnout uh, it was just too rapid of a pace for me to find these stories, research them, 
write them and then record them. So I ended up going to once a month, yeah. uh, which worked out in the long run because I don't think I could have gone, uh, you know, almost 15 years if I, if I was doing it as frequently as you're doing it. Well, this is the voice of experience. So I'm, I, I hear you. We'll, I'll try and make sure I keep an eye on things. It's only a year ago that I split the podcast into what we're doing right now, which is the retrocast. And then there's the full story that alternates with that. And that uh, that's only for the search engines because the search engines, you know, the uh, not the search engines, but the uh, podcast uh, indexes, they rank you by how popular you are. But if you're only putting out an episode every month, they just start dropping you and dropping you. So uh, that's I, I just split the show in half. Yeah. And uh, I do, you know, one every two weeks. But I definitely... Uh, Wish you luck at doing one every two weeks. Of course, you do have. I assume you have people helping you uh, a little bit along the way. Yeah, I've, I've got some help. I've got some help, but yeah, it it feels pretty full on mm-hmm. at the moment. I'm just enjoying it, but yeah, eventually there'll come a time where I'm trying to figure out how to take a break. <laughs> yeah. So we had discussed beforehand. Maybe you'd talk about one of the stories that's in the podcast. And you've mentioned a few already, but one in particular that we had talked about was the Hansel and Gretel uh, story. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah, I mean, people seem to really love this particular one, uh, partly because it has this nested structure. So we we begin and end with the Coen Brothers movie Fargo. But let's let's leave Fargo to one side. If you want to hear about how Fargo fits into it, then you can listen to the Cautionary Tales episode. But the heart of the episode is about this extraordinary discovery um, that the Grimm's fairy tale story of Hansel and Gretel is actually a historical story. It's based in historical fact. And this amazing book was published in Germany in, uh, I think, the 1960s, The Truth About Hansel and Gretel, where this whole process of discovery was described, the realisation that this particular scene with a particular pattern of the hills was exactly like the original woodcut in the Grimm's fairy tale, first edition, and the the artist had based it on on a real scene, he'd sketched it from a real scene. The discovery of this particular tree where the the woodcutter had had hung his axe from the tree and the tree had, the, the axe had knocked against the tree and that's how he'd fooled Hansel and Gretel into believing that he was still chopping the tree when in fact he was abandoning him in the, in the woods. You know, the discovery of the, the ruins of the witch's house and the ovens and the, the skeleton, all of this, all of this stuff and the whole thing um, based on reality. And, and it turned out that, in fact, it was a, it was a was not a couple of children who were nearly killed by a witch. It was a, a brother and sister, Hans and Greta, who had done in. Uh, a local uh, woman because they wanted her gingerbread recipe and they'd accused her of being a witch. And, and then in the end, they'd been accused of murder and they'd been a... Oh, that was absolutely sensational. It was a whole story. Um, the only problem is everything I just told you is a fantasy. The whole thing was a satire. And so this book, The Truth About Hansel and Gretel, was itself completely fictional. It was written as a joke. And what astonished the guy who wrote this book, was how seriously people mm-hmm. took the joke. He was, he was mocking. There was a certain fashion in you know, the true story behind Troy, for example, the true story behind the Bible, people claiming to find archaeological evidence for these ancient stories. 
And he was kind of mocking that, and he was claiming he'd found archaeological evidence for this Grimm's fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel, and he just made it all up. And uh, so the cautionary tale is about this process. It's about this book. It's about what happens to him, about how, ha- how angry everybody mm-hmm. gets with him. And then, yeah, that, that's all served up in a Fargo sandwich, because Fargo, as you may remember, also claims to be based on a true story. And so is it? And what are the consequences of saying that it's a true story when it isn't? Yeah, I thought that episode was excellent. It was, it was just the most artful of storytelling. The way you start out with Fargo and you talk about this Japanese woman, I won't, we'll, we'll leave that out. Let someone, you know, go listen to the podcast to hear the whole story. And then how you get into Hansel and Gretel and then the supposed true story. And then you talk about the social media at the end and how some things that are satire on social media somehow get picked up and people just spread it like it's the gospel, you know? Yeah. And is there a way to stop people spreading satire that is satire? Is there a, is there a way um, that you can stop people spreading fake news? And there's some interesting research into that. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's for me, it's the perfect package of, of cautionary tales because you've got you've got a story within a story within a story. They're all really fun. We get to get really gothic with the, the cackling of the witch trying to push Gretel into the oven and the witch herself is killed. And, and our sound designer, who's he's brilliantly talented, just doing amazing things with that story. But then pulling back and pulling back and, and introducing a twist and another twist. And then you know, we're, we're studying Facebook research into whether labeling stuff as satire actually stops anybody from sharing it. So, yeah, I had a lot of fun with, and that was a Halloween episode with two Halloween episodes. The other one was all about the curse of the mummy, which is also a story within a story within mm-hmm. a story and is also rather gothic and over the top. So, yeah, yeah. We're, we're having a lot of fun. Uh, I didn't realize they were Halloween stories because, uh, you know, I was just, list- I, I basically downloaded all of them at one time. And I'm just, you know, over a period of about maybe three, four weeks, I'm riding my bike, you know, going on long walks and I'm listening to them just, you know, going back farther and farther in time uh, until I got to the first episode. Then I got to the first one. I'm like, oh no, there's no more to listen to, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm doing my best, Steve, but you're trying to talk me out of releasing them every two weeks. You're no, trying no, no, to tell no. me that. Please, that you please want go ahead. <laughs> but yeah. So when I say the Halloween stories, we, we try not to release stories that are tied to a particular anniversary or tied to a particular time of year. Uh, it's nice to release something a little bit more spooky near Halloween. I'm working on a story, as I said, about Halloween candy. I'm also working on a story that has turkeys in it. And so I'm playing with the idea of dropping that one around Thanksgiving, Mm -hmm. even though it's got nothing to do with Thanksgiving, it just has turkeys in it. Um, That's a great story again about an art forgery. So yeah, you can listen to them any time of year, but every now and then we like to have the, the, you know, the festivals and the holidays at the back of our minds when we're deciding on the release date schedule. I try, you know, the only holiday that I've ever tried to do is Christmas, but I've kind of run out of really good Christmas stories. Um, I, I have a lot of, you know, kind of weak ones and I try and avoid those or they're too well known. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'm like, ah, there it is. There's my Christmas story. Uh, and it may be eight months before that I find it. Um, the, the last one I did, I put out and the next morning it was in USA Today. So they had someone had, rec- they hadn't, no one had done the story in years. And the next morning, USA Today had the same almost identical story. So it's kind of a little disappointed in that, but uh, 
uh, every once in a while. And, yep. <laughs> bad timing. It, it happens. Good stories, you know, they appear in more than one place sometimes. Yeah. So, Tim, I like to play old-time radio commercials, you know, from old-time radio. Uh, in fact, uh, I started doing it in April 2008, uh, and this makes the 146th uh, old-time uh, commercial I'm going to play. So let's take a listen to that. Have you sent for your Space Patrol spaceophone yet? You better hurry! Yes, sir, this sensational offer is soon going to end. And you don't want to be left without one of these thrilling new spaceophone sets, do you? No, siree. So, hurry! More fun. You can talk back and forth on the spaceophone to someone who's straight 50 feet away. Just like talking on the telephone. Complete with two spaceophones, 50 feet of communication cord, and secret briefing sheet. Now remember... These are official spaceophones, made especially for you on Earth. Real beauties, too. Gleaming blue and yellow plastic. Look exactly like the spaceophones Buzz Corey and the gang use. So don't wait a single day. Hurry! Yes, sir, you have to hurry, because this offer soon comes to an end. To get the complete Space Patrol spaceophone set, do this. Buy a box of Instant Ralston. Then, with your name and address, send 25 cents in coin and an Instant Ralston box top to Space Patrol, Box 686, St. Louis, Missouri. This offer good only in continental U.S. and may be withdrawn at any time. That's Space Patrol, Box 686, St. Louis, Missouri. That commercial for Instant Ralston Serials from the November 8, 1952 broadcast of Space Patrol. This particular episode is titled City of the Sun. And the show is set in the 30th century, and the mission of the Space Patrol Force was to bring law and order to the interplanetary frontier. Now, what I found unusual about this program, which was clearly aimed at a juvenile audience, is that it originated on ABC television before it was broadcast on radio. You know, most shows at this time were making the transition from radio to TV, not the other way around. Anyway, the TV show began its run in March of 1950, while the radio show didn't premiere until October 4th of 1952. Of course, everything does come to an end, and the TV show ended in February of 1955, and then the radio show ended one month later after completing 129 episodes. And the same cast performed on both the TV and the radio versions. As Commander-in-Chief Buzz Corey and his United Planet Space Patrol fought off the interplanetary villains, they were aided by a wide range of futuristic gadgets, and that included ray guns, atomo lights, and as you just heard a few moments ago, miniature spaceophones. The packaging of the spaceophones claimed that they required, quote, no batteries, no plug-in, and no license. Of course, that's because they had no electronics inside. What a kid received was two gleaming blue and yellow plastic walkie-talkie handsets with a thin diaphragm inside. And those two handsets were then attached by a 50-foot or 15-and-a-quarter-meter string. In other words, they were nothing more than the fancy version of those walkie-talkies that kids used to make, you know, by taking two empty cans and placing a long, taut string between them. Adjusted for inflation, that 25 cents that Ralston requested with the box top, it would be a little over $2.50 today. And that's clearly not a great bargain, but if you were one of the few people who never toss their space of phones in the trash, they're now selling for over $50 on eBay. 
The instant Ralston cereal promoted in this ad was manufactured by Ralston Purina, and the company began as the Robinson Danforth Commission Company in 1894, and they successfully marketed horse and mule feed under the Purina Mills name. Now, around the same time, a university professor named Dr. Webster Edgeley, he was leading a 19th century health and wellness movement that he called Ralstonism. At the peak of Ralstonism, he had an estimated 800,000 followers. Perhaps the most controversial thing, at least in my mind, about Ralstonism is that it called for white superiority through the creation of a new Caucasian race and that all other males should be castrated. Well, now putting all that aside, the one thing I do want to focus on is related to this cereal ad. And that's because Edgerly preached for the consumption of whole grain, especially whole wheat health foods and breakfast cereals. And that really isn't much different than the origins of both Kellogg's and Post-Brand cereals, which I've discussed in previous podcasts. And this is where Purina enters the picture. You see, in 1897, company founder William Danforth approached Edgerly and asked him if the mill could manufacture his cereal for him. Edgerly agreed, and the Ralston Health Club breakfast food successfully hit the market in June of 1897. Then, in 1902, Danforth once again asked for Ralston's endorsement of a whole new wheat cereal that the company had developed. Ralston agreed, but he insisted that his name be added to the company name, and that's how Ralston Purina came about. They wouldn't introduce the instant Ralston cereal until 1941. Unlike prior Ralston cereal, which required 5 to 10 minutes to prepare, instant Ralston was pre-cooked. All one needed to do was boil up some water or some milk and add it to the dry milled wheat cereal. Then, voila, 10 seconds later, the hot cereal was ready to eat. And we'll just fast forward to 1994 when Ralston Purina sells its cereal division, which included its popular Chex brand, to General Mills. Now, as far as I can tell, the Instant Ralston cereal is no longer marketed here in the United States, although it may be available overseas. So, Tim, when you were a kid, was there some toy, some prize that you really wanted? I remember a cereal packet that, that had Dungeons & Dragons tie-in books. And you had to write in uh, like a 50-word story or something as the tiebreaker to get hold of these books. And I suspect that not many kids could be bothered to write a 50-word story because I wrote off and promptly got these these books back. They were kind of choose-your-own-adventure books, which um, which were great fun. So they were, they were the best prize I ever got uh, from Serial. But, you, you know, you had to go that extra step. They didn't just come with the packet. Right. And, and of course, they knew most kids would never do that. So they hardly, you know, it kind of made those prizes rare, you know. Yeah, they got all the all the advertising from the sponsor, who was no doubt delighted to tell everybody that they had these Dungeons and Dragons product, products. But listeners will notice there's a certain Dungeons and Dragons obsession you're getting from me. I'm, I'm kind of a gaming nerd. <laughs> um, but yeah, they didn't have to give that many of these books away. The problem that I, that I, I have now is that the magazines that and that my son gets still have you know plastic rubbish attached to them and we'd we'd really and he doesn't want it and we don't want it and we're trying to get them to just we just want the magazine we don't want all this stuff that we only have to throw away that's bad for the environment that causes problems for the the postal delivery service uh so i wonder if that's going to change but they still seem to be attaching plastic to this stuff yeah, I notice every magazine I get is wrapped in plastic, you know. 
which, which I'm sure is to preserve the magazine, but on the other hand, yeah. it seems very wasteful. I, I was trying to think of something that I, as a kid, really wanted. And of course, I'm older than you, but they used to actually print records, L, you know, not LPs, but, uh, you know, actual records that were kind of plasticky on the back of the cereal boxes. You'd have to cut the circle out, which as a little kid is very difficult to do. You cut it out and you, and you put it on your record player and they never played, yeah. you know, but uh, it, for a kid that, you know, this is before the days of tapes or uh. MP3s or anything like that. It was just so great. You got this free record of the Archies or something on the box and they never worked. Yeah, well, these things, they were so, to have actual vinyl, they were so expensive. To ha- you know, you might only have a few, a few records. I mean, I'm a, I'm a little older, so for me it was uh, cassettes and CDs. But you wouldn't have that many in your collection. To have an extra one was a big deal. Um, but yeah, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yeah, kids are gypped today. Did they have Cracker Jacks uh, in, in, uh, in England when you were growing up? Or is that only an American thing? Are they, are they kind of cookie? What are they? No, they're like uh, caramel popcorn. But in every box, I had a toy surprise. And, you know, when I was a kid, the prizes were really great. And then over the years, they got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Then it became these little tattoos or stickers and kind of disappointing. Um, it's just a metaphor for life, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I, don't th- I'm, I don't think they give any prizes at all anymore, which kind of takes away the fun of it, you know. Well, in Europe, I don't know if you have them in America, we have Kinder Surprise eggs. Do you have Kinder Surprise uh, I do see them from time to time, but they're not uh, widespread. So, they, yeah, they're like these chocolate eggs, and inside there's a little yellow plastic cartridge, which is the yolk, and if you open the yellow plastic cartridge, there's a tiny little um, kit to make a toy, which is fantastic. Turns out the the challenge is to get the labelling to work on a tiny piece of paper so that these these labels, these instructions, or whatever the safety labeling, whatever it is, this little piece of paper in this yoke with these toys that has to go to countries all over the world in all of these different languages. Apparently, this is a really genuinely uh, difficult translation problem. Yeah, I, I've never had my hands on one. Um, it's only in the last few years that I've actually seen the eggs, even people talking about them. You know, um, and of course, I'm kind of past that age, and I don't have children, so. You're never too old for a kinder surprise, Steve. I'll have to, uh, next time I see one, maybe I'll have to grab one. (laughs) That's the way forward. Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from the sponsors of this podcast. But when we return, Tim and I will continue our discussion, and I'll let you know the answer to the question of the day. So we'll see you on the flip side. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. 
Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope, never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. Welcome back. I just want to point out that something just popped in my head, and that is the dentist. He wasn't uh, William Sharp. He was William Shine. I live on Sharp Road, and the owner of my house was William Shine, so I kind of mixed them up, though, so I apologize for that. And, of course, you uh, you kind of just took my suggestion there. Yes, well, I, re- I recently uh, re- remember researching that story, and uh, it, the name sounded right to me, but, of course, it's not quite right. There we go. So uh, our apologies to all dentists by the name of William Sharp. Please don't sue us. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Tim, uh, I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about what led you to recording Cautionary Tales. Well, I've been writing books for more than 15 years. My first book was The Undercover Economist, and I've written nine or ten books now, and also done a lot of work in audio. So since 2007, I've been presenting a BBC radio program called More or Less, which is all about the numbers in the news and how to interpret them, how to think clearly about them, which is also the topic of my most recent book, The Data Detective. So, you know, I, you know, I have this track record of, of writing nerdy social science stuff, telling stories, and of audio work. And I was approached by um, Jacob Weisberg, who is Malcolm Gladwell's partner as head of Pushkin. Pushkin is a newish podcast company. They make number of great podcasts. I mean, I would say that because I'm in the Pushkin stable, but, but uh, for example, uh, Jill Lepore from The New Yorker is a, uh, is a Pushkin podcaster. So is Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball and Liar's Poker and all these other great books. And so is Malcolm Gladwell himself with his Revisionist History podcast. So, so when they got in touch and said, would you like to do a podcast? I said, yeah, <laughs> sign me up. And when Jacob said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, what about a podcast about things going wrong and about learning the lessons? I've written at least two books that are sort of about things going wrong and how to put them right. One called Adapt, one called Messy. And so that just seemed that just seemed to be fine. And Cautionary Tales just seemed, well, it's the most, it's the most straightforward description. So, yeah, that conversation was, I don't know, early 2019. And so we spent months figuring out the first series, how it was going to fit together. But yeah, uh, and it, it's been tremendous fun. I do a lot of live talks. Uh, I've done several TED Talks, and I always find that a story is what really grabs people. So the storytelling style, I think, came fairly naturally, or at least it's something that I've been working on for a long time. So yeah, long may it continue. Yeah, it is very good. Um it just reminded me that uh, I was out riding my bike and you did an episode on the Sinclair C5. 
which was yeah. uh, <laughs> which to call it an electric car was a bit of an exaggeration because you know I'm I'm riding along and and you're talking about it and describing it and you're you you're really doing a very good job of describing what this vehicle is like. But then, you know, I, I get home and I decide I'm going to look this thing up. And I was shocked to see how tiny it was. And it looked like, I, I can't even describe it as more than like a, a go-kart, you know, that yeah. ran on a battery, you know. It, it really is a battery-powered go-kart. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a sad story. It's, it's a proper Shakespearean tragedy because the guy who came up with this idea he was a great British entrepreneur called Clive Sinclair, who did brilliant work making accessible calculators and then accessible computers, made a lot of money in these electronics, but he always dreamed of clean technology, revolutionizing the way that we drive, saving the planet, reducing pollution. And so he always dreamed of, of some kind of electric vehicle. And he made, I think, two basic mistakes, one of which was just, he just went too soon the technology wasn't ready, the batteries weren't good enough. He, this is in the early 1980s. And the second is he decided that it, a great kind of interim product would be this tiny little, it's like a sort of giant motorized white stiletto. I mean, it's a crazy little thing. Rather than saying, hey, you know, we could maybe make an electric bike, we could maybe make an electric scooter, you see them all the time now, or maybe we just need to make an actual electric car and people feel safe in an electric car, which, of course, is now widely recognized as being the, the future of automotive engineering. And you know, Elon Musk is one of the richest men on the planet because of his, um, his involvement and his shareholding in Tesla. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was sad because when you compare Sinclair and Musk, you say, well, these are two people who made their money in very similar ways, had very similar aspirations. Was Musk really a better entrepreneur than Sinclair or... Was he just trying to do it 40 years later, which was the right time? Right. It reminds me of a story I read years ago. I read a book on Sony, the history of Sony years ago. And uh, I seen, and this is a long time ago I read this book. But I seem to recall that their first product was a rice cooker. And uh, they couldn't sell the thing. Yet today, every, you know, uh, I have a rice cooker. I mean, they, they sell them for like $5 on Black Friday. You know, they're that... Uh, you know, that widespread in our society today, but they couldn't sell them at the time. They had the right product, but it was at the wrong time, you know? Yeah, no, it's, timing is, is not everything, but it's really important. Although I will mention, uh, I, I noticed this uh, when I was reading a little bit about uh, the, the Sinclair vehicle, it was the best-selling all-electric vehicle until the Nissan Leaf came along. Yeah, um, but it didn't sell much. It really <laughs> didn't sell much. Yeah. I think it was, uh, it, you know, they sold a few thousand um, and, and that was it. And yeah, it, I mean, just, he lost almost all his money and um, he became a bit of a laughing stock, which was a shame because he was really, you know, he was a very entrepreneurial guy. And I think there was a lot to like about Sir Clive. Yeah, it's a very good story. I encourage people to go listen to it. Oh, thank you. So, Tim, now we're going to do what I call footnotes history. These are really short stories that I couldn't do any further research on. So we're just going to read these words for word for word. So I'll take the first one, okay? Okay, go for it. This article appeared on page three of the March 13th, 1885 publication of the New York Times. The headline reads, The Cake Bewitched Him, How a Rondout Man Was Induced to Elope with Another Man's Wife. Kingston, New York, March 12th. 
The sequel to an Ulster County elopement has attracted much attention before the county court and court of sessions. Judge W.S. Kenyon presiding, now sitting in the city. James Delancey is a cripple and he uses a crutch. His wife is prepossessing. A month or so ago, she eloped with a young man named Fox of Rondout. They were arrested in Albany by the police. On the return of the pair to Kingston, there was a row between the crippled husband and the man who ran away with his wife, and the result was that Delancey was locked up in the Ulster County Jail for assault while Fox went free. When the case was called in court, the instance of the elopement came out, and the complainant, in reply to the questions asked by District Attorney A.T. Clearwater as to the original cause of the row, answered the question by laying all of the blame of the elopement on the shoulders of the woman. Okay, and here comes my favorite part. You ready? Fox, in extenuation of his conduct, offered the plea that Mrs. Delancey came to the house where he lived shortly before the elopement and gave him a piece of cake. He ate the succulent pastry and, quote, Four hours afterward, he declared, I was so crazy I didn't know anything and I couldn't leave her ten minutes. Something made me follow her every ten minutes. That's the end of the quote. Another piece of cake led to the elopement and still another piece to the row between himself and the injured husband. Fox said he was bewitched by the cake. He also said he was in fear for his life if the cripple was released. Delancey denied Fox's statement and asserted that Fox, quote, coaxed Mrs. Delancey away. The testimony created much merriment and surprise in court. Fox's people say that he had an evil eye on him, and with the cake over which incantations they allege had been said was the cause of Fox's waywardness. Delancey was discharged at the suggestion of the district attorney. I have to say, that must have been really, really good cake if he did that. Well, we have some good cake in my house, but I, something makes me believe that this is just a very weak excuse, that the cake made me do it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It reminds me of a story. My wife, uh, I told her when I was a kid, I really liked uh, black forest cake. And I'm sure what I ate as a kid wasn't a real black forest cake. So she was determined to make me a black forest cake. So she makes the first one. And I think it was for my birthday, maybe about 10 years ago. And she brings it out, and it was really good cake, but it wasn't a black forest cake. So I had to tell her, nope, that's not it. So then, I don't know, it must have been another occasion, and she finds another recipe for a black forest cake, and she makes it. And it was not anything like what I remembered a black forest cake being. So she kind of gave up at that point. And then we're at a party. Uh, actually, it was for my birthday. Uh, I didn't even know they were going to do this, but we're at someone's house for my birthday. And this couple, they bring out a Black Forest cake, and I tell my wife, that's it. And they just bought it at the supermarket, you know. There you go. I mean, this is nature's way of telling you to make your own Black Forest cake. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, um, so you're going to do the next one? Uh, Sure. Okay, here we go. This story originally appeared on page 8 of the January 7th, 1926 issue of the Albion Argus in Wahoo, Nebraska. Fire company called to put out a sunset. Oklahoma sunset so brilliant was thought to be fire by apartment house resident. Tulsa, January the 6th, United Press. Attention was called to the brilliance of Oklahoma sunsets when the fire department here was called to put one out. An apartment house resident rushed out screaming, fire! The fire department was summoned. 
Women in various stages of treatment hurried panic-stricken from a beauty parlour on the ground floor of the building. Firemen thronged into the building. On the top floor, a bright glare was visible through a crack. Hooks and axes ripped the ceiling away. To find the light was the setting sun, flickering through the latticework of a gable. So, Tim, I have to tell you, that story reminds me of the Beverly Hills Supper Club story that you did, uh, uh, which took place in 1977, I believe. Yeah, actually, to me, it's the opposite of the Beverly Hills Supper Club story. I mean, I, I can see why it reminds you, because it's they think there's a fire. Mm-hmm. But in the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire, uh, which was just one of the worst disasters ever to strike the United States, um, it was a crowded... It was, by the way, the Beverly Hills Supper Club's in Kentucky. It's nowhere near Beverly Hills. Um, it was just this packed entertainment venue, this big sort of uh, cabaret room, and a fire starts in the complex and just builds and builds and builds and they don't have proper sprinklers, they don't have adequate smoke alarms. And there's just this big delay in telling people they have to evacuate. And one of the things that struck me about the story and resonated with other crises was when this very brave young man, who's a very junior employee of the venue, a very junior employee of the venue, he finally gets on the stage, you know, shoves the entertainer away from the microphone and says, ladies and gentlemen, there's a fire, you need to leave. And he points out the emergency exits. The first thing that people do is to look left, look right, and ask themselves, is the person next to me moving? And there was just that critical delay while everyone kind of sat around, you know, is, this re- is there really a fire? Do we really have to leave? And over 100 people died. And, and I think if they had moved more quickly, then clearly fewer people would have died. And, uh, but I don't think it's a, it's a surprise at all. That It's a very human reaction. I think we, we felt it when that first wave of COVID hit. Mm-hmm. We were all looking around and going, well, really? Really? I don't see anyone else worrying. And, and of course, they're not worrying because they're looking at me and I don't seem to be worrying. So it's really the opposite of this um, rather beautiful story from Oklahoma where everyone panics about a fire and there is no fire in Beverly Hills. Everyone was pretty chill, thinking there probably wasn't a fire and um, it cost a lot of people their lives. Yeah, I think I read that uh, it was like from the time they first uh, were alerted by the young man who did it, I think the lights went out four minutes later or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, no one can see the door either. So it's absolute chaos, disaster. Yeah, a very sad story. Okay, so uh, I'll do the next story. Next up, we have an article that was printed on page 8 of the March 13, 1948 publication of the San Luis Obispo Tribune. The headline reads, New Pill Bans at Fear of Trip to Dentist. Los Angeles, March 13th, United Press. A harmless pill will take away all your fear of that trip to the dentist. Two dentists promise today that if you take the pill, a mild barbiturate, when you leave the house, you can walk fearlessly into the doctor's office. Doctors Milton Levine and Robert Hoyt of White Memorial Hospital's Institute of Experimental Medicine said the pill prevents fear and eliminates some of the pain of having teeth filled. They said they eliminated the rest of the pain through a new painless technique of injecting anesthetic. The new treatment was tested successfully on more than 200 patients in the last two years. Trips to the dentist became a pleasure instead of a horror for both adults and children, the doctors said. 
The pills have no bad effects on children if used in the amounts recommended by dentists, they said. If children prefer, they can drink an equally harmless soda pop containing the barbiturate. So it struck me funny about this story was that it involved barbiturates. Uh, I mean, that's something you'd never give today. Um, you know, of course, this is the 1940s before anyone realized how dangerous they were, you know? Well, I mean, we have our own uh, pain-killing drugs more sure. recently that turned out to be vastly more dangerous than uh, than anyone realized or that, that most people realized. So, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be too self-satisfied as we look back at the 1940s, but it is a reminder uh, of, of these weird days where there's, there's nothing that couldn't be cured by a pill. I'm trying to think uh, what book I was reading. Uh, I think it's called Pandora's Lab, and uh, they were you know, following from opium, the opioids all the way through uh, to the problems today. And, you know, how each one was supposed to, you know, whether it was heroin or whatever, it was supposed to be something that would get rid of the addiction and be better. And it was just that much more addictive, uh, each solution to the problem, you know? Yeah. And and just the sheer scale of it now, uh, I, I know the work of Anne Case and Angus Deaton, they're two very respected economists, Angus Deaton has a Nobel Prize, which is not easy to get. And they've been studying this problem of pain and the unintended consequences of the pain medication. And it's really, it, I mean, it is extraordinary when you look at the, the, you know, the big picture numbers. Life expectancy in, in the US has stopped rising, which is extraordinary because that was about the, you know, the most reliable metric in in social science, you know, mm-hmm. it, one thing you can be sure of is that in Western countries, life expectancy rises. It just keeps rising. It's been rising for decades. It's been rising for a couple of centuries. And then suddenly it's not. And it's really the, you know, the various spill-offs of pain, pain medication, alcohol. They call it deaths of despair. So, yeah, it's a long way from giving a pill to little kids so they can go to the dentist. Mm-hmm. But um, maybe it's not so far after all. Yeah. Um, you know, having been a teacher, the number of students I had whose parents were addicted to drugs, you know, it's just, uh, you know, a lot of times as a teacher, you don't know the backstory, but every once in a while you learn one and it's just so sad, you know? Yeah, really, really is. Okay. So, uh, you're going to do the next one. This story was published on page five of the April 8th, 1954 edition of the Los Angeles Mirror. Roscoe goes to Calaboose to escape TV at home. Roscoe Tard can count on five nights sleep anyway. It'll be in a cell at the Long Beach City Jail, but at least he won't be disturbed by his wife's televiewing. According to police, the 35-year-old labourer got so fed up with TV that he climbed up on the roof of his home at 818 East Anaheim Street, Long Beach, and chopped down the antenna. And when the police arrived they said they found him chasing his wife, Beatrice, 31, around the house. Tard pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct yesterday and told Municipal Judge Charles D. Wallace, Your Honour, my wife played the TV all night. I couldn't sleep and she just wouldn't turn the darn thing off. The judge sympathised with Roscoe and told him, I can see that it might make you emotionally disturbed. But he added tersely, Five days or $25. Roscoe, gratefully, chose the calaboose. What struck me funny about this story is that my parents, uh, as long as I can remember, 
they slept with the TV on. They couldn't sleep if the TV wasn't playing. And as they got older, of course, their hearing started to d- diminish, and they had to play the TV louder and louder and louder. So, you know, when I uh, moved out and years later I'd just come back on a weekend or for a week or whatever it may be, the TV would be so loud. And, of course, I couldn't sleep, but they were getting a good night's sleep, you know. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's really striking reading this story how badly it's aged because, I mean, it, it's like the punchline for a, a traditional comedian, isn't it? And it's like, oh, ho, ho, the guy was so fed up of his wife, he gratefully chose the, the calaboose. And then you go, well, hang on a minute. He was, he was chasing his wife around the house. I mean, this must have been terrifying for her. Um, I guess it, it reveals a little something of, of our attitudes in the 1950s towards domestic violence and how by the end of the story, this journalist is presenting the husband as the victim and, uh, and his prison sentence as a, as a mercy from the judge. Uh, yeah, um, kind of glad we've moved on both from the, the barbiturates of the dentist and from this. <laughs> Definitely. Totally agree. Okay, I'll do the last one. And in our last story for today, we have a story that was printed on page four of the January 3rd, 1961 issue of the Chicago Tribune. Headline reads, A stewed duck is too saucy to suit cops. An aroma like that of tasty wine sauce wafted from the duck in a cell at the Woodstock City Jail yesterday. It wasn't that the duck was about to become someone's meal. The duck was alive and quacking. Every once in a while, it would utter a plaintive... (laughs) Now, policemen Don Liston and Tom Vernier are not men to sneer at a drunken drake. After all, they are worldly men. But no one can blame them for regarding the duck with something less than affection because he caused them considerable trouble. Leeds cop Mary Chase The affair of the duck began in the morning when the two policemen were sent to the south end of Woodstock in answer to a radio call that a weaving duck was wandering about. On arrival... They spotted the duck waddling about the slippery streets and sidewalks, occasionally flapping his wings. They detected a noticeable stagger in his stride. They set out to pursue the duck. The duck seemed to enjoy this considerably. He would just scoot along just a few inches off the ground, sail over a snowbank, something the policeman couldn't do, then pause politely until they almost caught up to him. Then he would take off again, gambling across the snow-covered lawns, all the while looking back to make sure that the two-man posse was still in pursuit. Pursuit draws crowd. Needless to say, this activity, the quacking of the ducking and the puffing of the winded policemen, attracted quite a crowd. Many small boys watched with interest. The duck finally outfoxed himself, though. He scooted into a garage and the policemen triumphantly snared him. Last night, he was lodged in cell number one, a guest of the city of Woodstock. Listen and Veneer speculated that the duck was a tame one, and that an exuberant owner might have experimented on the duck with some New Year's eggnog. The duck did not seem to take to black coffee, but he did like lettuce. I have to say, I haven't encountered many uh, drunk ducks in my life. Uh, I don't think I've ever met one, although if I did meet one, I'm not sure how I would know. Um, There is a restaurant in the English Lake District to the northwest of England where we often often go to that uh, region on family holidays, Uh, and it's called the Drunken Duck. 
so I feel that I need we we tried to go there last time we were in the area, but they were they were all books out, so it was obviously popular. And I don't know whether this refers to some dish where the duck is cooked in a in a wine sauce or whether mm-hmm. there's some other backstory. I, I now feel I need to know. Yeah, you have to ask the next time you go. Uh, I think I think I will. I think I will. But it's supposed to be good, so um, I will report back, okay. Steve, if I have anything to say about the Drunken Duck restaurant. I'm definitely curious. Um, I have to say, you know, in all my years of research, I, I always click these little stories. Multiple times, I've come across stories about drunk elephants. I think I put in one in a podcast years ago, but I've come across it multiple times, and I, it's mostly in India. But uh, they just go rampaging through the street and they destroy everything. Yeah, I've not heard about them. I have heard about uh, drunken uh, mooses, mm-hmm. or or is it or is it meese? I don't know what the plural of moose. I'm is. I'm not sure but, myself uh, either. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's fermented fruit, isn't it? You mm-hmm. just eat enough fermented fruit, and and there's trouble. And you wouldn't want to argue either with a drunken moose or a drunken elephant. No, definitely not. So, Tim, earlier I'd asked you about Martin Luther King Jr. and what his real name was. What was he born with? Did you have any clue? I'm, I'm ashamed that I don't know. And one of the reasons that I'm ashamed is because I remember picking up from the very first page of a Martin Luther King biography, uh, may have been by Taylor Branch, who wrote one of the classic biographies, um, that when he was, I think, five years old, he told his parents, when I grow up, I'm going to get me some big words. And I remember that about him, but presumably on the very same page of this book, they must have told me what his what name he was christened with. So no, I don't know. Put me out of my misery and my shame. Well, I wouldn't have known either. Uh, it's just something I stumbled across. And uh, his his real name, his birth name was Michael King Jr. Michael King. And of course, his dad was Michael King Sr. And and so is Martin short for Michael or was that, does that count as a, as an abbreviation or does nope. it count as like, you know, John and Jack, or is it mm-hmm. a, a name change? No. Um, from what I, uh, I, I didn't do a lot of research on this, but what, uh, I understand is the father that's Michael King senior. Uh, he took a trip to Germany, uh, which is Martin Luther King's uh, place of birth. He made a trip there in 1934 and he's just impressed by what he had to say. Cause you got to remember there's a lot of racism in the United States, uh, back then. And uh, of course, uh, Martin Luther King, I'm sorry again, Martin Luther was the founder of the Protestant church, you know, protest against uh, Catholicism. Uh, It valued individualism and standing up against uh, oppressive authority. And that's why he adopted the name, or at least that's what they believe why he adopted the name. And then of course he uh, uh, gave that name to his son. Of course. But it turns out uh, Martin Luther King Jr., he did not officially change his name until 1957. So that's uh, like 23 years later. Oh, right. So he would have been well into his time at the heart of the civil rights movement by then. Right. And, and what's interesting, uh, and I didn't see a copy of this, but it was described that someone just took a black pen, crossed out Michael, and just just wrote Martin Luther Jr. in there, and that's on his birth certificate. Wow, that's amazing. A curious thing about uh, Martin Luther and, and what he was doing, uh, one of my interests is the history of technology. And in my book 50 inventions that shaped modern economy i talk about the impact of paper and the printing press they kind of go hand in hand you, there's not really much use in having a movable type yeah. printing press unless you've got a, a cheap thing to print on but it turns out it was really uh, these were vital inventions 
for enabling the word to get out. And, mm-hmm. and they also, of course, caused a huge amount of social unrest and effectively civil war between the Catholics and the Protestants. And reminiscent in a way of the way that new media, so radio in the 1920s, 1930s, social media in the 21st century, that they have also empowered you know, new ways for people to put their views across and new ways for people to disagree with each other. Yeah, both good and bad. Yeah. Uh, speaking of your book, the original question I was going to ask you, but I couldn't find the source on this. And this goes back to the year 2000. And they had asked, it could have been Time Magazine, one of the invention magazines I read, I don't really recall anymore. But it asked a bunch of inventors and uh, maybe some tinkerers or whatever, people who have a prominence at the time, what was the most important invention of all time? And uh, I really couldn't find proof on this. So I can't really uh, say that it's totally true. But they chose the match as the most important invention. That once man could create fire whenever they wanted, uh, that gave them, you know, just from there, everything just kind of dominoed into place. That's very interesting. I would not have, I, I hadn't heard that and I would not have picked that uh, because there are, there are other ways to make fire. Um, and, you know, the match, the match is convenient, but it doesn't feel like a game changer in the same way. For example, the printing presses mm-hmm. or the steam engine or electricity. I mean, there are others one could, or, or paper itself. Right. Um, interesting, though. Very, very interesting. A- another, relevant to this, but another one of the inventions that I talk about in, in the book is the light bulb. Mm-hmm. There's a fascinating study of the price of light conducted by William Nordhaus, who's another Nobel Prize winning economist. And he basically tried to figure out how many hours work would it take to create an hour of light enough to read by. And from sharpening your axe, going out, chopping down a tree, Mm. getting some flint and tinder, lighting a fire, through to oil lamps, through to candles, through to incandescent bulbs. And the price basically falls from you'd have to work for a week to get an hour of light to you could work for a second and you'd have more than an hour of light. You wouldn't, you just wouldn't even notice. Uh, and it's a, it's a, an indication how, at least with some technologies, they, they really have moved in a way that is, is unrecognizable over, over the centuries. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, it kind of reminds me, uh, just popped in my head as you're speaking, is uh, years ago, I went to the Ontario Science Center. This is back about 30 years ago. Went to the Ontario Science Center in Toronto. And uh, they had a bicycle there. And you had to get on and start pedaling to try and light a light bulb. You know, uh, you, you realize how much energy it takes to do that, you know. It is. Although, in, in, I'm sure if they had a modern LED bulb, it would be a lot less. Sure. So that's, that's but yeah, no, it, it's a 100-watt bulb. That's, that's a lot. That's really a lot. Incidentally, there's a cautionary tale that is partly about the invention of the bicycle. And it's all about, uh, it's called Frankenstein versus the Volcano. It's a fairly recent cautionary tales episode. And it's, it's all about the, this juddering shock to the world's climate that's caused by a volcanic eruption in 1815. And it just changes everything for a few years. And the story is really about how different creative people respond from Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein to a German inventor called Karl von Drace, who's looking for a way to replace the horse because people can't afford oats. So it, it's, I think in this 
sort of as as we try and recover from this pandemic, I think it, it gives me a little bit of hope that even after really difficult times, there is this creative response. People find a way to push back and do new things because they've been tested. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Uh, I should mention, uh, I mean, you're talking about the volcano Tambora, um, which uh, I used, I mean, I was a nurse science teacher for 30 years. So I mentioned that every uh, single year. And it was called the year without summer because uh, yeah. even though uh, uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, it's in, in Indonesia, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, people were starved to death here in, you know, New England, uh, it's, it's kind of amazing that something that far away would have that kind of effect, you know? Yeah. And of course, at the time, they had absolutely no idea why. I right. just knew the weather had gone weird. Just have this fear it's going to happen someday soon, you know. N- nature's very unpredictable in, in that sense. Uh, yeah, well, we just have to be ready and try to adapt and do what we can to avoid uh, poking the bear, so to speak, as far <laughs> as as far as the natural world is concerned. We're not doing the best job at the moment of that. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Well, I guess uh, we should bring this to a close. Well, Steve, thank you for inviting me on the show. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. I, I am just thrilled that you uh, agreed to come on. Uh, when I threw it out there, I didn't really expect you to say yes. But, uh, I, I do, again, want to say that your podcast is Cautionary Tales. It is excellent. It's one of the best ones out there. Of course, you can find it on all the uh, podcast platforms. That's Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and so on. Um, your website is timharford.com. I should mention it's not Hartford. It's Harford without the T in it. It is, it is indeed Harford. Thank you for getting that right. And, and I'm, I'm going to keep trying to put out cautionary tales every two weeks, but I hear you, Steve. Maybe it's going to be too much. So maybe I'm going to have to pull back. But I listen to the voice of experience. You've been doing this 15 years. You know what you're doing. I, I should tell you, I mean, uh, when I started the podcast, I was working two full-time jobs at that time, and I was doing the podcast. So I was a little overwhelmed at the time, you know. And now in the last two years, I'm retired, so I have a little more time to work on it. Although I still keep incredibly busy. I have so many other things that I have interest in. So, Well, they always say, if you want to get something done, you ask a busy person. So that's you, Steve. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I should also mention that you have a whole bunch of books. Would you say there are 10 of them? Uh, yeah, it depends exactly how, which you count and in which territory, but yeah, between eight and 10. Okay. Uh, the most recent of which is The Data Detective in the US. It's called How to Make the World Add Up uh, Outside the US and Canada. And maybe the most famous uh, book uh, was my first book, The The Undercover Economist. Which I should mention, I read, sold over 1 million copies. That's incredible. Yeah, it's because uh, I, I, it was my first book, I didn't quite realize how incredible it was. But there you go. Now I do. <laughs> Congratulations on that. That's just amazing. Um, there's also your TED Talks on YouTube. I, I watched three of them. Is that, uh, I, mean, I think that's what Yeah, there are, only, there are only three. If you'd watched four, I would be starting to raise questions. Yeah, only three. And uh, they are highly recommended and they are on YouTube. Anyway, I'd like to thank Tim again, and I'll be back shortly with the next podcast. So take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.